Luke 12, verse 31, instead seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Good word for us every day. Our passage this morning is Isaiah 58, Isaiah chapter 58. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you grab the uh, bulletin. If you got one of those on the way in, you can find it on the inside cover there. Grab one of the pew Bibles, um, find it on your phone, any number of ways, but uh, I encourage you to follow along as we read in just one moment, uh, Isaiah chapter 58. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist, fasting like yours this day. will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour out yourself for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the, found, the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take the light in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, <clears throat> excuse me, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We might be tired, we might be weary, we might be full of energy. Wherever we are, would you help us to take rest and to take refuge in you? knowing that you, you are the one who gives us the words of eternal life. So to you we turn. 
Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. How-to sermons, dangerous, especially for a congregation like us. Now, to be clear, I love our congregation. We're motivated. We're achievement-oriented. We're disciplined. We're eager to learn. If you wanted to pay us a compliment, you might call us perfectionists. If you wanted to give us some constructive criticism, you might also call us perfectionists. Sometimes perfectionists believe their own press, their own PR. We sometimes believe that we really are self-made men and women. And therefore, if you hand us a to-do list, if you hand us a how-to sermon, we may simply add it to our own personal to-do list, which we always complete by the end of the week. Amen? And doesn't it feel good when we cross those items off the list? Show of hands, if you dare, has anyone here ever written something down that you've already accomplished just so you have the satisfaction of crossing it off the list? That's, that's some condemning laughter there, I believe. Uh, yeah, it's fun, isn't it? The danger of the how-to sermon is that we usually skip the first and most important how-to, how to humble yourself before a holy God. In other words, we forget the lesson that we learned just last week. Chapter 57, verse 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly. To revive the heart of the contrite. Now we don't soft pedal the holiness of God, nor should we. But we also don't want to minimize our helplessness or God's healing to us. As well, last week, verse 18 said this. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. In spite of his ways, I will heal him. I have seen his ways. It's not a compliment, but at least it's followed by good news. But even so, there is still danger lurking all around here. If you hand us a how-to, if you hand us a list, and we forget that God provides all that we need and more, then we're going to selfishly seek out more, whether it's more money, more status, more righteous-looking behavior. Similarly, if we forget that God provides the righteousness that he requires, then our selfish, insecure hearts, what will they do? They may simply pretend that we are righteous. Seek out ways to appear righteous. Is that how God wants us to live? Or does he want us to believe that he's good? Living in giving by faith, does he want us to live that way, knowing that I'm accepted in Christ, knowing that I will have all that I need through Christ's provision? I think that's how he wants us to live. So let's embrace the danger of the how-to sermon so that we can learn how to live as contented children of a good and gracious father. What's the first thing we see this morning? We see this, how hypocrisy hinders divine hearing. How hypocrisy hinders divine hearing in verses 1 through 3. Now, to be clear, God always hears. He's all-knowing. He's all-seeing. He's all-hearing. He, he always hears. And contrary to a Garth Brooks song that I like, God always answers prayer. 
Sometimes the answer is no, or not yet, or I have something better than you asked or imagined. But God always hears and he always answers. And Israel knew that too. But they wanted to know why he wasn't answering favorably the way they wanted. Because even they could tell that something was wrong. Listen to God's summary, verses one through three. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression. To the house of Jacob their sins, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? They thought they were doing what they were supposed to, at least on some level. And that God wasn't seeing it or acknowledging it. And why not? Was God hard of hearing? No. Israel was hard-headed, stubborn, rebellious even. That word that's translated transgression by the ESV in verse 1. It's rebellion in many other translations. Because after all, sin is lawlessness, First John reminds us. So how can this be? Israel was seeking God. They were delighting to know his ways. What did it say in verse two? As if, as if they were a nation that did righteousness, as if. This was teenage slang a few years back. I think that's fallen out of vogue now. But even so, those words suggest that Israel was playing a part, going through the motions. Indeed, they were apparently fasting. Verse three says, some scholars say that Israel had increased the number of fast days above and beyond what was required. If going through the motions could save you, then Israel was in good shape. But it couldn't, and it still can't. Because just going through the motions bypasses the heart. It's religion without faith, without trust in God. It's the appearance of godliness without the power, without the Holy Spirit-driven good works. Again, it's the danger of the how-to sermon, the how-to guidebook. You can do the how-to without humbling your heart, without trusting in your God, without killing selfishness and envy. <clears throat> and that kind of hypocritical doing, well, it hinders God's hearing. Oh, he hears. But, but in this case, he doesn't heal until we humble ourselves. That leads us to the next thing we see. Deepening this point a bit, second point, the second thing we see, how to be selfish on the Sabbath. How to be selfish on the Sabbath. I take it you already realize there's some sarcasm there. But the word Sabbath, uh, by the way, it doesn't appear until verse 13. But it does seem like Isaiah kind of equates the expected attitude towards both fast days and Sabbath days. In short, they are both God's delightful gift to us to focus on him, to forget self, and to serve others <clears throat> in need. Excuse me. But Israel seemed to have missed that, learned the wrong lesson. They learned how to be selfish on the Sabbath. You see, if we aren't content with what God provides, then we'll probably be selfish. We'll take God's good gifts and we'll hoard them to ourselves. We'll approach life like it's mine for the taking with an attitude of, I must get I must keep, I must protect. 
that sound like a day of holy rest, a day set aside to hunger after more of God? How about verse three? How does this sound? We've read half of it already. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. You remember last week's confession of sin? It's Exodus 20, the fourth commandment. It says you aren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. You or your kids, even your oxen. I assume most of us don't have oxen at home. But did you also notice how it said that our servants aren't supposed to work? Well, I don't have servants either, Matt. Whether you do or don't, I think it still applies to us. But first, how did it apply to Israel? It's pretty obvious, isn't it? They were supposed to show the same mercy to their servants that God had shown to them. They were supposed to give their servants a day off too. And how seriously were they taking the Sabbath? Well, they took the day off, but they treated their servants poorly, worked them like dogs, oppressed them, it says. Reminds me of what Barry Webb wrote about Isaiah 56. I mentioned this a while ago because it's been a while since we were in Isaiah 56, the beginning of it. He said, true Sabbath observance is to refrain from evil, not just work. He also wrote to keep the Sabbath meant, among other things, that you serve the God who created the whole world and cared for everyone and everything in it. I summarized it this way back when we looked at Isaiah 56. The Sabbath is about rest for you and those who serve you. Rest for you and those who serve you. But Israel kept the Sabbath selfishly. They gave themselves the day off, but they didn't show the same kindness to their servants and their workers and I am making the following point with fear and trembling because I think it's appropriate for Christians to ask themselves how they can prevent others from having to serve them on the Sabbath. I think that's appropriate. I think that could apply to decisions about shopping patterns, about decisions to eat out or not on Sundays. I do think that. However, I also don't want to make it sound like eating out on a Sunday is a mortal, unforgivable sin. And because I also know that there will be Sundays when you get waylaid by the flu and something like that, and you need to figure out how to feed your family. So for that reason, let me offer a humble suggestion, how to show Christian kindness if you find yourself in similar circumstances to what I just described. If you feel you must eat out on Sundays, then at the very least, be polite to your server and tip them generously. My Hebrew professor once looked at all of us and said, gentlemen, you understand God's grace. You should understand God's grace. Therefore, you should be the best tippers. Now, maybe I remember that because I waited tables for part of seminary. I also remember coworkers who said, Christians who ate out after church on Sunday were bad tippers. That was a thing. Maybe that reputation was and is unfair. I hope so. But by God's grace, I hope we can change it as well. I hope we can be selfless and kind to anyone we encounter. And again, that's not what Israel did. Israel was not kind to their workers. They were selfish. Verse 3, they sought their own pleasure, not God's, not the good of others. And then verse 4 says, behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. 
Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Violence, not how to properly observe the Sabbath or a fast day. And then verse 5 says, Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself. Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? What's wrong with that? Commentators suggest these words are implying a, a mere formalism, just going through the motions once again. Make sure we bow, check. Make sure we wear sackcloth, check. Not bad by itself. But if you do all that and it leads you to selfishness, oppression, violence, then what good is it? And verse 9 also seems to suggest their fast, their Sabbath, they were full of finger pointing, blame shifting, wicked speech. They had forgotten about the gospel that saved a wretch like me. So they needed to appear more righteous or at the very least less wicked than their neighbor. Again, if you forget God's provision, all that we need for life and godliness, all the daily bread we need and more, then what happens? If you forget about the God who knows my ways and still promises to heal me, if I forget about him, then I'll try to cover my wounds and my sins and my shortcomings. I'll focus on looking good instead of doing good. If I forget about the God who gives wine and milk without money and without price, then I'll be eager to get, not eager to give. I can't give my stuff away. Why would I do that? What if I run out? Forgetting God, forgetting his goodness, his lavish provisions of daily bread, springs of water that well up to eternal life. Forgetting the God who gives us a day off. The God who gives us all that we need for salvation in Christ. Who graciously tells us to rest in him alone. Forgetting him is how to be selfish on the Sabbath. But praise the Lord, there's a better way. That leads to our third point where we see how to be selfless on the Sabbath, how to be selfless on the Sabbath. You see it in verses five through 14. Uh, grammar alert, did you notice all of the ifs and all of the thens in the text? Make note of those, we'll talk about them soon. But first, what's the difference between a selfish heart and a selfless heart? What's a selfish heart look like? One that doesn't trust God, what does it look like and sound like? It says things like, I must get, it's all mine for the taking, right? And then what does a selfless heart look like? It says, I must trust. He said he would provide all that I need and more. I must trust. And when it looks, when a selfless heart looks at his money, his possessions, it says, it's not mine anyway. It's not mine anyway. I'm just a steward. I'm just a caretaker entrusted with what God has given me to use it for his glory. And for the record, I think God is glorified by birthday presents for our kids, by spaghetti or tetrazzini on Tuesdays. I think he's also glorified by household goods given to Mercy's Gate, by dinner invitations to newcomers at church that expects nothing in return. I think he's glorified by all those things. And I think all of it flows from believing what Keith Berger said to a tightwad like me in premarital counseling years ago. It's just money. It's just money. And it's God's money. I believe, Lord. Help my unbelief. It's not mine. It's God's. 
It's God's gift to me to glorify him. Now, how's that apply to the gift of the Sabbath, to feast days, holidays, and more? Look with me at verses six and seven. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of the wicked, of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? God's people are a so that people, someone once said, so that people blessed so that we might be a blessing to others. He gives us the blessing of the Sabbath. He tells us that if you cease from your labor on Sunday, while the rest of the world is still worrying about how to make another buck, I will still provide for you. I've given you enough hours in the day and in the week to do what you need. And if you rest in the fullness of that blessing and that promise, then you may even have leftovers enough left over to give to others, whether it's hosting a small group, baking cookies, relieving some kind of burden upon someone else through a work of necessity or mercy. Isn't that what God wants? Isn't this why he's blessed us in the first place to image his love and mercy and care throughout the world? And he shows us more pictures of what this could, what it should look like by God's grace how to be selfless on the Sabbath. You see it in verses 9 and 10, as well as verse 13, after the if statements. Verse 9, if you take away the yoke and the finger pointing, he says in part. Verse 10, if you pour yourself out, you see selflessness instead of selfishness. Verse 13, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, later, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure. What's it not saying? It is not saying the way to obey is to not have fun, to do something you don't really enjoy and simply grit your teeth. It is saying that selfishness is contrary to the Sabbath. What did I say earlier? The Sabbath, fast days, they are God's delightful gift to us so that we can focus on him, forget self, and serve others in need. It's a gift to us. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That is true. It's a gift, and it's a gift to us. But the point of this gift is to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto God. Because only then can we see the gift for what it is. A glorious provision of rest and worship. A chance to see what our soul truly needs. A God who is larger than life, greater than self, lasting forever. Only then can we see the fullness of his goodness to us in Christ, how he enables us to do what he calls us to do. What's the danger, I asked earlier, of the how-to sermon? Oh, it's that we just add it to our to-do list, that we just do it in our own strength, that we forget to humble ourselves before a holy God one way to say that is this. We cannot do the third point of this how-to sermon on our own. You cannot will yourself to be selfless. Oh, you might do some of it outwardly. I'm not saying that. But you cannot humble your heart without God's help. A lot of Isaiah is simply trying to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we fall upon his grace and his mercy. But there's one more danger lurking here as well at least one, 
one more danger lurking. It's the preacher who preaches against perfectionism so passionately that his people forget that they can please God. I'll say that one more time. The preacher who preaches against perfectionism so passionately that his people forget they can please God. We can please God. We can't do what he requires without his strength and without his grace. But as born again, simultaneously sinful yet justified Christians, we can please God. We don't need to walk around as if God is mostly irritated with us most of the time and that he barely tolerates us. Because in Christ, that's not the case. If you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 16, section 6, it says, I'm summarizing, because we're accepted through faith in Christ, our good works are also accepted. Not because those good works are perfect, because our motives will never be 100% pure on this side of heaven, but because God looks upon our good works through the lens of Christ in his perfection. And therefore, quote, God is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. But Matt, those are the words of men. What's the word of God say? Good question. Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. A few verses later, the verses that I use is a benediction every communion Sunday, including last week. Verses 20 and 21, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We cannot do this on our own, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Because through faith in Christ, we can be accepted by God. We can please God. And when we try to please him in the proper way, through the strength that he supplies, through the selflessness that he enables, we're promised a blessing. And that leads to our fourth and final point, briefly, where we see how God satisfies the selfless. How God satisfies the selfless in verses 6 to 14. I get nervous when I talk about doing something for the reward. It makes me question my motives. But Isaiah, God's mouthpiece, his prophet, Isaiah is not afraid to motivate God's people with divine blessings. And these are glorious, over-the-top blessings that you see here. You see them after the words, then, in our text. But first, remember the flow. Point one, we see Israel's hypocrisy. It hindered God's hearing. Why don't we have blessings? Second point, because your hearts are selfish. And then third, then we see the way it should be. We see the selfless heart that obeys in faith. And then finally, God says to us, if you do this, if you do this from a humble heart that lets me heal you, then there's four thens in the final seven verses. Hebrew nerds, yes, there's only three of them, but the fourth one in English is sort of implied. But start with me in verse 9. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, he, and he will say, here I am. It's the very thing they wanted in verses 1 through 3. If you live as God calls you to live in humble reliance on his grace, then he will answer. He will come near to you. Emmanuel, God with us, he will come. He will say, here I am. 
And what else does he promise? Back up, verse 8. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Webb says that these terms, they all refer to the same reality, the full realization of the covenant blessings for which they were longing. And some of that is far off in the distant future, but Derek Thomas reminds us that the Sabbath quote is designed as a help for the weary. It provides a taste of gospel rest and a foretaste of eternal rest. Look with me at some of the thens in verses 10 through 12. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations you should be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Derek Thomas ends his chapter on this passage by asking, what can I expect if I give a day a week to worship God? He also says, ask yourself, do I know anything like this? Then he names off these blessings from verses 8 through 14. Fresh beginnings, healing and restoration, Gospel security that comes from knowing that we are considered righteous. Protection from the enemy. The Lord acts as our rear guard, it says. Thomas says, in meeting the Lord in worship, it is though we are given assurance that he has our back. There's also communion with God. There's guidance and strength in verse 11. There's refreshment like a well-watered garden. There's the idea of rebuilding. I think I'm losing count at this point. It anticipates both the rebuilding of Jerusalem following the exile as well as the new Jerusalem that is to come. And after all those blessings, he asks, all this from a Sabbath? Yes, and more. Strength for the weary from God's special day. Now, as we said, how-to sermons, they can be dangerous, right? They can reinforce our own worst self-reliant tendencies. But you know what else is dangerous? Ignoring the strength and blessing that God promises to provide. So, my friends, humble yourselves so that God can exalt you. Rest on the day that he's provided so that he can strengthen you. Serve in the strength that he provides and see if you aren't refreshed, if you don't find God's gift to be the delight that he promises. That's how to be selfless on the Sabbath. And it's also how to live as one of his children, trusting, resting, as one who is accepted and loved is a child who has all that they need and more, is a child who's ready to share. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness to us. As we give thanks, as we sing of your mercy, would you help us to share the hope that we have in Christ our Savior? It's in his name we pray. Amen.